This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here uh, on our respite between storms. <laughs> um, as most of you know, I'm Andrew Brandt, director of the Morad Center for the Study of Sports Law here. In addition to some media responsibilities, I've gotten to know these two guys pretty well, and uh, it's a real honor and pleasure to have them here and to have them in front of you today. These are two of the leaders for the National Football League Players Association, two guys that I've become very uh, impressed with in their dogged responsibilities and leadership of NFL players. To my right is Assistant Director George Atala, who you will hear from in a minute, and to my left is no stranger to Villanova Law, Sean Sansevieri, graduate uh, 2008, and much to his dismay, before this building was built. Uh, I had the parking garage one year. He had the garage. So he is envious of all of you that are here now. Um, what I thought I'd do is go through some of the issues going on in sports, primarily, obviously, football, not only the NFL, but in college football as well, because obviously there's a big issue involving unionization there. Get the thoughts of George and Sean and sort of go conversational for the next half hour or so, and then open it up to you guys. I know you have some questions. I know there's a lot of issues out there. And then speaking of issues, we'll start right away with what happened yesterday. It kept us all busy in the media. Uh, the first openly gay player to announce his homosexuality. Uh, he will be entering the NFL. His name is Michael Sam, collegiate prospect from University of Missouri, rated to be a high collegiate prospect. Certainly, it drew a reaction nationally from all kinds of people, and one of those reactions came from the NFLPA, the National Football League Players Association, which will be welcoming him with open arms into the NFL, into their union. So let's start right there. Michael Sam, University of Missouri, comes out on ESPN and New York Times on Sunday night, the first person in the NFL to openly announce that they're gay while playing, although he hasn't started his career yet. A courageous act. George, your response, and since it's been, what, 48 hours, what's it been like for you? What do you think of the reaction, not only from the media, but from what you've seen of NFL teams? Well, I think there's three layers to this that we approach it as a union. First is our role uh, for the workplace and professional environment that we have to ensure uh, is established across the league. So we have, for the first time in the 2011 CBA, anti-discrimination language against sexual orientation or against discrimination for sexual orientation. For the first time, that exists. And so stage one is, as a union, how do we make sure that that gets enforced? Step two is a professional workplace, right? We have to uh, make sure that all NFL clubs, players, personnel, ownership even, are held to the highest standards of professionalism. When you guys go to whatever law firm you'll enter into or whatever office you'll enter into, when you've graduated from here, they have certain regulations that they have to abide by. They have a certain culture that they have to establish. There are certain state and federal <laughs> laws that they have to um, make sure that they also abide by. Are those things being met? And that's kind of the second layer of uh, what we do as a union. Um, third layer is, of course, 
which is the softer side of it, is to make sure that he feels comfortable uh, in the locker room, in his workplace, uh, make sure that going through the process of what will be a very rigorous job interview, that he is presented with every opportunity to succeed, that he doesn't have additional artificial or illegal layers of adversity that he has to overcome to be the best possible professional that he can be, uh, and really make sure that players understand that, I mean, look, we represent 2,000 active players. If you've ever met two NFL players, you know that they have difference of opinion on everything from the kind of pizza that they like <laughs> to the kind of movies that they like, and cert certainly on social and political issues. So regardless of players' political views, and I think Ryan Clark and Dante Stallworth really kind of encapsulated this perspective, your job is to be the best possible human tackler, in his case, <laughs> you could be. Right. And, and that's kind of the, the three layers that we approach it from um, uh, over the last 48 hours. Sean? Yeah, I mean, have to applaud the guy for his leadership, first and foremost. Um, and then separately, you know, I look at mostly as, as a role as an in-house lawyer, I look at it from an accountability standpoint, you know, the, the obligations we have and the core function as the union uh, that we have um, really lends itself to an oversight and accountability. Let's make sure that the clubs are following the CBA mandates. Let's make sure that, you know, we have a respectful work environment and taking, at a, look, taking a look at it from an oversight and enforcement standpoint. George, what I worry about with Michael Sam is not homophobia. I worry about a more subtle and maybe more sinister form of discrimination where teams, having been with a team, will decide what every word you want to use, maintenance, distraction, circus, that they'll take a similarly rated player in the third round, fourth round, fifth round, who doesn't bring the stuff. Now. After the fact, I'm sure they'll say, we like this guy better, we had other needs, he wasn't big enough, tall enough, whatever the words. Yeah. But how do you even, it's hard to enforce and it's hard to legislate that kind of thing. I'll tell you a personal story and why this is, this is really hard to enforce. So before I had this job, I'm not a lawyer. I was doing strategic and crisis communications management uh, in Washington for a firm that really dealt with Middle East clients, okay? Uh, I was starting to look elsewhere, did an interview with um, uh, somebody at a firm in Washington that I will protect their names. And I went into the interview and I knew that that person had an issue with one of the clients that we represented that I worked on, okay? Political, serious political difference. Now he didn't say it, but he didn't hire me because uh, my client, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, at the time, um, he was not of that political, he just had a political difference and a, and a strict one. And I know that because he asked me that during the interview. And I wound up getting a thank you letter for <laughs> like literally like within hours of walking out of the interview. I had some email that said, thanks for coming in, but you know, we're gonna look at other candidates. It's a concern. It's a, it's, a, it's a serious concern that I've been through because of my background, because of, you know, uh, and it's not even on a national scale. That was like a very right. micro thing. 
Uh, it's hard to enforce, as Sean said, our obligation as a union is to look for those things. Um, but the best thing strategically, and I thought this is where Michael and his team were very smart, strategically the best thing you can do is get ahead of it. So one thing you guys will do as professionals eventually is you'll be asked to give your opinion on strategy and strategic thinking and positioning, not just, you know, beyond just the law. Um, his positioning before the combine, I thought, was very smart because he gets to own his story, he gets to tell his story, and he gets to deal with it in a way that is ahead of the anonymous sources at the combine, the potential leaks, the distract, you know, the stuff that really causes a circus. And, and I'll say this um, lastly, yeah. he's not the first college player to be a prospect who has distractions. I mean, I know we're in this 24-hour news cycle, but uh, you know, there have been a lot of other players who've come into the league with media hype and circus and attention. So you know, good teams, as you've been on on the management side, you know, good teams figure out a way to overcome that stuff. Yeah, if he can play, he can play. Yeah, I mean, on the distraction side, I, I said that the most, the happiest guy going to the combine now is Johnny Manziel, <laughs> because some of the attention, name names. <laughs> the attention is off him. The the distraction element. Sticking with that question, Sean, there is, there is no tangible way to enforce that. Is there a way to make him feel to make? people that look to him feel like he's being treated fairly, like he's being treated professionally, like he's being treated like every other prospect entering the NFL? I mean, we're going to rely largely on the player leadership uh, to make sure that that happens. And you saw the statements made from our president, Dominic Foxworth, yesterday. I mean, right. you know, this is a business, and we expect it to operate like a professional workplace. And uh, in the event that's not the case, we're going to do everything we can to investigate and enforce that. On the player side, I, well, there have been all the supportive statements. Sure. But there's been, Jonathan Vilma was out before the announcement. Sure. Saying how weird it would be to have a gay teammate in the locker room and shouting, all those kind of things. He has since, what I think, backtracked after the announcement. Again, you represent 2,000 players. Not all of them are going to be in support of Michael Sam. Yeah. How do you deal yeah, with that? And again, not every player is going to agree on what slice of pizza is the best. Right. Um, it's really challenging. And we, Sean said it best, we rely on our player leadership. Um, strong player leadership is why we've come as far as we have as a union. Uh, you know, again, a note about the NFL Players Association, we're about 100 professional staff in Washington, D.C., but that's not really the core of, of who we are. We are responsible as, a, as an administrative staff to administer um, the, the strategy, the protocols, the, the issues that our players care about. And Dominique came out very strongly yesterday, and I think it was a good signal. Ryan Clark, again, same thing. Dante, who was uh, involved with the union at one point. Eric Winston, another player. And the list goes on and on of players who say, look, Whatever your sexual orientation is, it is what it is. But we expect everybody to treat this as a professional workplace. And maybe this is a perfect segue to, to get into some of the issues in Miami. Yeah. Because I was going there. Again, it's it's not a question of 
it, it, with Richie and Cognito and Jonathan Martin of sexual orientation, but clearly there was a line that was crossed in that organization uh, of professional conduct. And that is a segue. That was the next topic. Uh, Ted Wells, an attorney in New York, is leading an investigation. We expect a report later this week, maybe early next week, a comprehensive look into what happened. For those of you who aren't aware, Richie Incognito, a player on the Dolphins, Jonathan Martin, a player of the Dolphins, Jonathan Martin split. He left the scene. He was felt that he could no longer tolerate what was going on. And with that, both players were put on reserve lists, paid through the year, but the investigation continues. It's gone on two months, uh, and we expect a report. My sense is that report will lead to workplace rules beyond the Dolphins throughout the league. What do you expect from that report? What do you want from that report? As someone that represents the players and have seen this in the news for three months, what do you want to come out of this? Uh, so without speculating too much what's going to be in the report, um, what we want from is a fair process. I mean, if you look back over the last few years, um, there's been some investigations that may not have been as fair, and I won't, I won't go. I, George will I, yell at me if me I go. Yeah, I'll let, I could say. All right, I'll let George <laughs> go there. But obviously we want a process um, that gives the players an opportunity to be heard, um, that gives um, whoever is the ultimate decision maker um, the relevant facts on, on which to make the decision. Uh, and I think we're seeing that with this process, and, and, and George, I'm sure, will add some color to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've been on record. I mean, the, the bounty situation. It's, it's not bounty. And, and there's a reason why we're pleased and our Super Bowl press conference went a little more <laughs> right. uh, uh, comfortably than it has in years past. It's not bounty. It's not a, a, a guilty conclusion before a, a fair due process, like Sean said, is undertaken. And I think, look, the outcome is important. The, the outcome of what happens, uh, of what we see in Ted Wells' report is important. Union also d conducted its own investigation. We are preparing our own report as well. Um, these issues are so critically important to our league and our union and our players because they really tend to um, put in focus the idea that this is a workplace. This is, the locker room is not, is not some, it's not a game anymore. You're not, you know, how many people in the room played sports at the high school level, formally? How many people played sports at the college level, formally? Okay, so you guys know it's like a little bit of a different, anybody professionally in any sport? Where'd you play? Uh, baseball. And you made it to? Minor league. Minor league. So, Major League Baseball, great tradition, great union history. I'm sure you guys heard the speech about this is your work environment a bazillion times. And you know, you don't talk about, um, we don't talk about it, uh, or maybe historically we hadn't talked about it that much, but now the focus is, guys, you conduct yourselves as professionals. And you guys means owner all the way down to trainer. Um, and, and that's really what this is gonna be. In again, in terms of outcomes, you know, I can tell you uh, uh, that we've been in close touch with the league on this. You, you know that. Uh, whether or not there's going to be any new policies out of this, uh, I don't know the answer to that yet. Uh, we tend to believe that, again, an investigation is occurring because existing policies might not have been adhered to. So, you know, we tend to get into this cycle of 
existing policy enforcement, and then is there really a need for, for new ones? And you know, obviously in Sean's role on the health and safety stuff, we've got a whole slew of new policies on that issue that he's been responsible for. It, it really has been a cycle. I mean, one of the other high profile examples this year was uh, the MRSA in Tampa yeah, uh, yeah. incident. And a as a result of that, we took a close look at the policies and sort of uh, encouraged the NFL to do better. And uh, we've negotiated a comprehensive infectious disease protocol that's being worked on with an independent group out of Duke University called DICON. Uh, and by in time for the next season, we're going to have everything from a central repository uh, for MRSA and staff testing to uh, preventative standard uh, 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 site-specific protocols for every single team, checklists that they have to follow, uh, to, follow to ensure compliance, um, and, and everything in between, emergency uh, uh, action planning in the event that uh, a staff or a MRSA infection hmm. is found. So that's the type of things that you know, the, the way we approach the process, and it's the same thing with concussions, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah. I'll, I'll save that. We're gonna get more to health and safety. Last thing, on, on the Martin Incognito and the bounty, mm -hmm. I've remarked that you have a tough job because two of your constituents, or more, many, are at odds. And you can't pick a side. Nope. So where do you come out when you have whether it's the allegations that bounties are on some of your players by other players or one of your players picking on another to the point where he leaves the team, how do you manage that? Yeah, and, and again, this is the law question. And we racked our brains for a few hours. Uh, you know, I remember uh, a, a glimpse into how we work, right? So the, the news breaks, uh, we, we meet with our internal team of senior lawyers and player relationship folks in our office and we say okay what do we do right what do we do um, legally we set up we set it up so that Richie has his own outside representation outside counsel you help with that or he had his uh, own he he asked us for a referral and we made a couple of referrals and then he interviewed those lawyers and picked one we offered the same thing to all of the other Miami Dolphins players that were uh, implicated or involved. The offensive line, mem other members of the team. <coughs> some of them chose union representation. Some of them chose outside counsel. We offered the same thing to Jonathan Martin. Martin had already hired uh, somebody on the outside, declined our offer, but at the s you, know, you can see how the union itself, because we're interested in the facts, we had to legally make sure that we were insulated from any real or perceived mm. conflict of interest. So we worked closely with Richie and his attorney to make sure that they were aware of the process so that his rights were protected, his fair due process rights were protected. We offered the same thing to Jonathan. We met with all of the other Miami Dolphins players that were implicated. So we kind of set up this pyramid structure, if you will, for, for, for the legal team. And maybe pyramid is not the right description, Sean, but that's, that's, our interest was protect every player's fair due process rights and find out the facts. Yeah, I think the bottom line here is that we're not, in, we're not stranger to having competing interests being represented amongst the members. I mean, we have a very diverse membership, and right. by, by nature of being a union, we have a disagreement amongst, you know, our core function and our role. I mean, we have some very uh, 
right-leaning members and we have some more left-leaning members and you know obviously in the grander you know the larger political landscape our left-leaning members um, would probably be more supportive of for instance a teachers union um, you know many of them look at us as similar to the, the larger broader labor movement which we are very closely tied to uh, and others look at us as entirely separate and you know we constantly have to balance those interests and Ultimately, what we do is we follow the direction of our player leaders um, who are elected through um, a process of by their team members to, be, uh, to fulfill the board of player reps and then an executive committee and then our president. So. And we, I mean, look, when, when you see the fines, it's an offense player and a defensive player. The game is a conflict of interest, right? right? So when we represent a player defending himself over a fine that was levied by the league, we don't view that as a conflict of interest. It's, it's one member believing that the fine was excessive and so we go through the review process with the independent arbitrators and we see the process out. And I think we've tended over the last five years, you know, we don't get a lot of credit, so I'm gonna give ourselves credit for this. <laughs> to really focus on the, a transparent, uh, professional, as fair as possible process for every individual player. And for the lawyers in this room, if you take it down to the next level, I mean, you're going to have clients in your lifetime, uh, in your professional career, uh, that you have to be a fierce advocate, even if uh, the issues are a little um, uh, murky uh, at points. And you know, we as the union are the advocates of the players. Um, and we're going to be on both sides of the issues every once in a while, but it is our obligation to, to fairly and, and passionately uh, represent those players, our members. I think that's a great point. And, you know, you, I hadn't thought about asking this, but you bring up there may be a contract dispute of a remaining money due, for instance, to Aaron Hernandez, yeah, who's in jail on a murder charge. But as you said... That's your, that's your job, yeah. right? So we just have to figure out where the hearing's going to be held. You know? so. <laughs> yes. <It's> horrible. <laughs> but, Sorry. But, no, but the Hernandez thing drives me, I mean, you know, I will, I, my main job function is, uh, one of my main job functions is media relations. And I rarely take a shot at my friends in the media. But <laughs> on this one, I mean, come on. Union defends murder were the headlines. And I'm like... If you even understood our role as a union in this, that headline would not be what it is. Because replace Aaron Hernandez with Tom Brady. Right. Yeah. Right? Tom Brady shows up for his workouts. He's due a bonus of $5. Let's just say that's what's in his contract. We are going to make sure he gets paid that $5. Because if he doesn't get paid his $5, then... The Crafts, the Maras, the all the other owners will look and say, there's precedent for he showed up to work out. We don't have to pay him his $5. Right, yeah. I mean, and it's even a, farther than that. It's, it's a product of federal labor law. We are the exclusive bargaining representative of the players, and it is our obligation to enforce the rights uh, through collective bargaining. Right. Um, and part of that is, is going to bat through the process of grievance arbitrations. Uh, to argue on behalf of an uh, individual player issue, whether it's an injury grievance, the guy gets injured and is cut, um, we have to go after the rest of that contract money that he's entitled to, or whether it's a benefit under the CBA, like an injury protection benefit. Um, if the, the guy is cut and unable to play the following year, he's entitled to 50% of his salary up to a million dollars. 
Uh, very often we find ourselves in grievance arbitrations going after those benefits for those players. And the other side is the non-injury grievances. If a player is wronged, if he's paid the wrong salary amount, uh, then we have to go and fight for those as well. Yeah, I think the Aaron Hernandez, you guys made the point, it's, it's not about Aaron Hernandez. It's, not. it's part of a greater good. It's anyone could be in that position fighting a team for a bonus. The fact that he's in jail doing it doesn't really make a difference. Right. We're three years, I think, yeah, three years into the new CBA. Now, as someone who covered that more than any sane person should, yeah, right. <laughs> I, uh, I thought there was a trade-off. I thought you traded some economic <coughs> benefits for health and safety. Uh, three years in, do you agree with that? How do you feel about it? Where, how is it going? Three out of 10 years, we're 30% into the deal. Oh, let's do, let's do three layers of the deal. Yeah. Because that's really, really what we were negotiating, all right? Um, you start off with layer number one, what were their demands? All right, let's take their macro demands. More money. They wanted, their initial offer was, you, players, you guys take 18% less money, and you play two more games. Generally speaking, right? Let's take a very macro look at what they want. Okay. No. <laughs> Our bargaining position on that was no. For the longest time, no. And layer number two, okay, you get to the real core of negotiations. Uh, they didn't believe the economic model worked. They believed rookies were getting paid too much money. Um, and they still wanted more games. So on the first two, we said, okay, what do the economics say now? Again, a little less than, than just macro bargaining issues. Um, our members told us that the rookie situation uh, was not one that they wanted to budge on, but if we could negotiate other. other issues economically, we would. And the main crux of the rookie negotiation was around if money was going to be taken out of the first round, it would have to go back into a veteran pool. So you shrink the rookie pool, you don't put that money into the owner's pockets, you do things like create minimum spends and put that money into uh, veteran minimums. So, again, macro bargaining. Um, our job as a union when it comes to collective bargaining is to make the best effort to create an agreement or to negotiate an agreement that benefits the largest amount of players <coughs> over, the large, over the longest amount of time. 1,800 members, it's hard to do. Longest amount of time, best possible deal for the largest amount of players. So 60%, one interesting <coughs> number, 60% of our players play for the veteran minimum, which this year is a little over $400,000. Right, if you're depending on the year. Depending on the yeah. year, a little over $400,000 is the minimum wage in the NFL. If you're looking at your membership and you say, okay, 60% of our guys, more than half of our guys play for the veteran minimum, it's important that we make sure that teams spend a higher minimum than they did in the prior deal. So you may not, you know, the general public loves to kind of harp on the Sam Bradford bazillion dollar guarantee in the old deal and you know Jamarcus Russell bazillion dollar 
Stafford, the old yeah. Stafford, et cetera, et cetera. But if that money is going to be cycled back in and benefit a Group. larger number of players for a longer amount of time, then we've done our job as a union to negotiate the best possible agreement. Now, let's go to the longest amount of time. Um, and this is where I'll, I'll transition and, and toss it to Sean. The longest amount of time also means that we want to give players who have short careers, under four years, the opportunity to earn as much money as possible for the longest amount of time as possible. In a sport that everybody knows often ends for an athlete because of injury, we want to mitigate the risk of injury as much as possible and build in things that are commonly known as health and safety to help guys play longer. That means a much shortened off season, limits on contact during the season, um, all sorts of health and safety stuff that we've done over the last three years to help uh, uh, make sure that, that players are taken care of when they're done playing. Legacy benefit. Do you guys know this is the first agreement where owners directly contribute to players' pensions? To the tune of like 350 million, I think, or 365 million, something like that. So when you look at the deal macro, and we're only three years in, right. we feel pretty good about the overall um, framework for the CBA because of all of the things I've mentioned. And then this is a good segue, I think, for, for Sean to talk about how exponentially advanced we've become when you talk about the health and safety so, Sean, you want to mention some of those things? Yeah, and, and George, you know, talked about, you know, the, the economics and the minimum salaries. But, you know, when you, th and, you know, 400000 or, or around there obviously sounds like a lot. Um, you know, a young partner at a law firm, that's probably what you're pulling in um, eight years after you've left this uh, institution. Um, <laughs> you know, so it takes a while. So it does sound like a lot. But the reality is, you know, the average career length in the NFL is still about 3.5 years. Um, we're, we're at about 4,500 injuries in a year, and we have 1,800 players. That's well over 100% injury rate. Um, you know, the, the, we as a union, our obligation is to employ, always is to employ the NFL to do a better job with health and safety, um, to make sure that we're enforcing the CBA requirements related to health and safety, uh, and, and to make sure that all the care providers in the league um, act in the, the best, uh, um, act into the, the best interest of players in terms of uh, patient, player-patient rights. You know, we've come a long way over the last four years, and especially since the 2011 CBA, towards implementing evidence-based practices and protocols uh, designed to protect uh, the health of the players and the safety of their work environment. By evidence-based, I mean research-supported. Um, just by way of example, for the first time in 2013, we have a comprehensive concussion evaluation management protocol. I'm not saying we didn't have protocols and practices in place prior to that, but for the first time we have a comprehensive protocol document. This is important for many, many reasons. One, obviously as the, the union that represents the players, we think that the employer who has the obligation to provide the safest work environment possible should be articulating not only to the players and to the medical staffs, but to the broader medical community the protections in place um, for players in their work environment. Uh, the new document itself actually contains things like uh, a unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant, formerly known as sideline concussion expert. 
This is an uh, independent uh, neurologist, neurosurgeon, or emergency room physician on the sideline at every single game there to observe or perform all concussion evaluations. So now, we, now we're ensuring that players have the most qualified physicians on the sideline overseeing the processes. We also have standardized pr uh, uh, practices in place in the event that he, an occurrence of a concussion is not clear. Um, obviously, you know, there's a lot going on on the field, a lot going on on the sideline. It's not always absolutely clear that a head-to-head -head collision resulted in a concussion. But in the instance where it's unclear or you have a mechanism of injury that warrants a concussion evaluation, the team physician best qualified to do the concussion evaluation is required now, required for the first time to do a focused neurological exam. And if he believes, he or she believes that that player can go back on the field, is not concussed, they're then required to go look at the video to, to make sure that the, uh, the mechanism, the actual hit itself, does not warrant a further exam. In the event they do the full comprehensive exam, the sideline concussion expert has to come in. So as you see, similar to like what, they, the, what they've done in other industries like the avi aviation industry, we're making redundant communications and putting processes in place to eliminate human error and make sure that uh, the health and safety of the players is best protected. And, and we can extrapolate that to other aspects beyond concussion. I know concussion. I don't think people here or people listening through the stream knew all those <coughs> excuse me, processes that are going on for concussions. So I think with two-part question, one, are you satisfied with concussion protocol today, which I mean, you may have just answered, and number two, your reaction to the concussion settlement, the universal global settlement for 765 million, which has hit kind of a snag, but we expect it to go forward. We've had one of the lawyers here talking about it. Uh, your thoughts on that? First of all, if, if you already yeah. answered, if you're satisfied with the concussion protocol today in the NFL and your reaction to the settlement. Uh, on, the f on the first one, and I'll kick, George, kick it to George for the second one, because um, I think I know the answer to that one. Uh, we're never satisfied, like I said, to start, it's always our obligation to employ the NFL to do a better job with health and safety. Uh, and just by way of example, um, you know, there's a graduated return to play process in place in the NFL. Once you're diagnosed with concussion, you have to go through a certain amount of steps in order to return. You have to be asymptomatic and baseline. You have to go through a graduated exertion protocol. You have to be cleared by an independent neurological consultant. Um, we have an issue of um, the, the ZERT, and this is getting in the weeds, but there's a, something called the ZERT consensus protocol, which ultimately says you have to return to contact practice and ultimately be cleared. There's a difficulty with squaring a guy on IR for those football fans, injured reserve, you know, to put him back in contact practice. We need to close those loops and we need to continue to evaluate whether what we're doing is effective. And uh, we'll look at the UNC program, the Unaffiliated Neurotrauma Consultant Program and everything in the off season. So we're always looking for ways to improve. Uh, question number two is easy. We're not a party to the case, so we have no position on, on the settlement discussions. Uh, you know, we, we do, as a union, continue to collectively bargain the benefits of, I mean, almost 15,000 former NFL players, many of whom obviously are, are, have signed their name to the, to the concussion lawsuit. Uh, but we don't have a, a formal view on it. We're, we've reviewed it. We've looked at the uh, documents. Uh, we've talked to players about it, but we haven't um, put our, it, it's inappropriate for us to insert ourselves into the process because we're not a party to the case. But I'm sure players ask. Sure they do. Is it good? Should I, should I join? Well, I guess before the settlement. Should I join these lawsuits? Should I sign up with the lawyers? We cannot, we cannot and we have not uh, uh, offered them an opinion on it because we, we can't. I mean, 
it's a challenging position to be in because you want to do what you can to help out the your constituents who are impacted and who have been impacted uh, by concussions because of their playing days. You have to be delicate about inserting yourself into a legal process that you are not a party to. Um, so we've been very careful to not offer um, advice or counsel when it comes to that stuff. If we get a call, uh, we typically, you know, refer them back to their lawyer and say, make sure um, you're asking the right questions. And that's the point. I mean, every you guys will learn as lawyers, every individual, every player, every client is different. And to adequately protect those rights, I mean, they need to seek legal representation. Quickly on the macro concussion issue, I'm asked all the time about mothers and not letting kids play football. As someone represents football players, are you worried? Are you worried about the sport changing and the particip participation levels declining? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I'm worried because it's obvious that we still have work to do. So it worries me that we're not at a place yet where we can guarantee, and I'm not sure we'll ever be able to guarantee, uh, where we can guarantee a young man's um, care in the mm -hmm. NFL. That worries me. And we tend to look at this issue of, is the game safe through the prism of helmet-to-helmet contact? I mean, that's the visual that we get. As a union, we look at it through a comprehensive look Things at like MRSA, player yeah. care. Yeah. Yeah. When this young man enters the NFL, you know, let's take Michael Sam. It's not just a question of, is he going to be discriminated against? It's a question of, if he gets into trouble, does he have his fair due process rights? If he gets injured on the field seriously, does he have a right to workers' compensation? That's a huge issue now that we're facing. You know, in, uh, workers' compensation, we tell our players, is a form of lifetime medical care. You hurt your knee at work, 10 years down the road you need a surgery, you filed a workers' comp claim for the injury you sustained at work, 10 years down the road that surgery is covered by federal and state workers' comp law. So it's a, it's a more comprehensive look as opposed to the prism that we Right. The, the average fan looks at of the you know, two Monday night football helmets crashing into each other. Um, but there's more that can be done on that, too. Time has flown, but I... We're going to stick around. We'll try to one. take uh, two or three questions. I know some people have to, have to go. Questions? Heather, identify yourself. I, I just did, uh, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's a complicated question because it involves things like medical ethics and informed consent, but ultimately the concussion protocols are intended to provide the medical staffs who are responsible for player care with processes to take care of the guys. 
So when you say a player following um, a concussion protocol, you got to think about levels of informed consent and asking somebody with a potential cognitive deficit, a concussion, to make an informed choice. Right. Um, ultimately, and we've talked very at length with our members about this, um, and actually I'll tell you a quick story. At one of our Mackey White Traumatic Brain Injury Committee meetings, it's a committee formed of uh, medical experts from around the country, top in their field, we actually posed this question to the player leadership, um, and a doctor actually proposed this. He said, if you know everything about your condition, uh, isn't it your choice, isn't it ultimately your choice as to whether you return to play? And player after player, retired, active, president, leadership, everybody, stood up one after another and said, Doc, it's your job to protect us from ourselves. We're always going to go back into the game. So it's, it's a complicated question with, with, you know, look at it from different angles, but ultimately the protocols are designed so that we provide this for so that the, the league provides the safest work environment possible. And a player's always going to want to go back in the game. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, the I, I played high school basketball, I sprained my ankle, I couldn't walk. I was like, don't take me out. Right. You know? I mean, yeah. Sir. Good question. There's obviously a fair amount of trash talk that takes place on the field between players. Um, there's a reason that the games are now, I think, three to five second tape delays yeah, delay. when they mic up the offensive linemen. I mean, I don't want to make light of it, but it's really hard to uh, regulate that kind of language. It happens in every sport. I think you have to get to a point where you instill the uh, virtues or values of professionalism uh, and sportsmanship to all players. Um, but look, I mean, my guess is it's probably not the first time that Michael Sam has heard stuff said about him that's bad. And do you regulate it? Do you fine it? It's a good question. I mean, you have to put boom mics everywhere, I guess, and, and look for that kind of thing. But. Uh, it's the case with all kinds of language. Is that ultimately on him? Say there's these slurs on the field and he doesn't say anything. Would you act regardless? Repeat that again. If he's I'm saying if, if, if enforcement of that is on him or is it on generally hearing these kind of things without him complaining? That's a good question. I mean, again, you had an issue this year where a game official Right, right, to the Redskins remember, yeah, player. To, to a Washington Redskins player, and the league looked into it, and ultimately they took action. And I think you know, we have to get to a point where we're not in a crime and punishment paradigm. We're in a uh, education, value, professionalism paradigm. And I think that you know, this step taken by a young man who was brave enough to tell his own story, you know, might be the thing that starts to get us away from the, the ugly things that you're referring to. But he wouldn't come to the CBA have any standing then? Sure he would. If he wanted to, sure. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be part of the anti-discrimination. Right, there is that. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. <coughs> if he wanted to pursue something, I'm sure he could. And Chris Cluey's doing that, by the way, in Minnesota. 
separately or through the grievance process? Or, uh, uh, I don't know if he's done a formal grievance yet, but certainly he's looked at wrongful termination for his outspoken political views. No more questions? All right, we're out. <laughs> <laughs> One minute we got left. Quick thought on, was there a question? Yeah. Oh, Matt, sorry. Yes. Okay. Great question. The Northwestern situation. They potential. are awesome. Yes, we have been in touch with Ramogi. We have been supportive of his Explain efforts. who Ramogi. Ramogi Huma is the head of the National College Association of Players. Um, and I've met him, known him now for, for almost five years since I've had his job. Um, he had a teammate named Donnie Edwards at UCLA who lost his eligibility because he accepted a bag of groceries from a family member, okay? Because the, the whatever stipend or money that they got for food wasn't enough for him. So he literally accepted a bag of groceries and the NCAA found that to be a violation and he got fined or suspended. Donnie went on to have a great NFL career. But Ramogi looked at that and said, ain't this some yep. bull? And he started looking at ways to organize college athletes. Again, two questions. There's the legal question, which I'll let you handle and you guys <laughs> handle of. Will they be recognized as a union? Is Illinois the right forum? Student-athlete versus employee. versus employee. Right. That kind of stuff. You guys in law school can figure that out. That's I'm right. less interested in that than I am in the origins of a union. And that is the strength of a group of people to stand up and demand representation. And it's not even, you know, the follow-up question I usually get is, well, should they get paid or not? Again, secondary to the conversation for me because they, King Coulter, who I've also had the pleasure of meeting and talking to, um, it's not about getting paid or not. It's about benefits, the, a Medical seat at the table, yeah. right? I mean, they want to write in knowing certain things. They want truth and recruiting. And for Kane to stand up, and do this for not his benefit for players that'll come Future, after yeah. him. I mean that takes real courage and real leadership. So I'm, you know, we're proud yeah, of them. We're, we're going to support them. We're absolutely supportive, and, and they're paired with some of the best in, in the working with the steel, steel workers, workers on the organization right. aspect. But for, from a legal perspective, it is an interesting thought exercise, especially when you get past the question of whether these are employee. Uh, there's a employee-employer relationship. But think about you know the tax consequences if this is considered compensation from an employer. Think about workers' comp issues, um, and obviously we have the post-career health benefits and all that. So there is a lot there and a lot to unravel. It'll be interesting to see what the board does. We're losing the room. Thanks for coming, and thanks for this. People who watched on stream, this has been extremely educational, informative, and entertaining. Let's thank our guests. We're going to hang out for a couple George minutes. and Sean have graciously offered to hang out for a few minutes. Yes. You want to come up?